Hey, we're Phil and Meredith, and we're the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're excited to be coming to you through this platform today. We hope that your heart is encouraged, that your faith is stirred by what God speaks to you today. God bless you. Enjoy the message. Okay, so I wanna uh, pray first, and then we're gonna read a really familiar piece of Scripture that most people will have heard from before, but let's pray. God, we're thankful for what you're doing here in the place. We're thankful for what you have done. We're thankful for what you are doing. God, we just choose to set our minds, our hearts on you again, right here at the start of this week, right here at the start of this brand new month, knowing that it is only by you that we can be saved. Thankful, thankful for your goodness and thankful for your grace in our lives, God. God, we just ask that you remove every distraction from us today that we can focus on what you are saying. God, if I am the distraction here today, I ask that you remove me. Let only your words be carried here today, God. We're thankful that you're a speaking God, thankful that you're an able God, thankful that you are a miracle-working God. You're such a good Father. In your Son's name, we've all prayed. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So the scripture that I want to start with today is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Philippians 4, 13. You can turn your Bibles there if you want. It's just one scripture that I want to start with as we jump into the Word today. It's a really familiar scripture. If you're familiar with scriptures like John 3.16 and other verses like that, then I'm sure you've heard this one before. Philippians 4.13 in the English Standard Version reads like this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All things? All things. What things? All things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That means that game seven is coming. I can do all things. That means that I have a job interview coming up. I can do all things. That means that I've got some difficult situation that I need to overcome. I can do That means I need to ask the girl out that I've been wanting to ask out for some time. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter what situation comes against you, no matter what weapon has been formed against you, I can do all things because he has strengthened me to do them. We have victory in his name. We can overcome everything, every situation, every circumstance that comes against us because he has made us to be an overcomer because he is an overcomer. Every soul can be revived. Every sin can be covered because I can do all things through his strength. Amen? Amen. Consider that the God who threw Satan out of heaven, the God that created life, the God that overcame death, the God that has done everything that we read about in the Bible, that is the God that not just created you, not just knows you, but he is the God that loves you as well. He is the forever unchanging Alpha and Omega, the big God that can do anything that he wants to do. And because he wants to do anything, he has created the keys for us to be able to do those same things as well. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He doesn't just sit on the sidelines of our life watching what is going on. He enters into our life cheering us on, believing that we can overcome as well. He doesn't just spectate what's going on, but he steps into our mess wanting to make a difference, believing that every time that we call on him, he will step in on our behalf and make a difference. Amen? I can do all things. He's a God who will never leave you nor forsake you. 
No matter what you're standing against, no matter how far you've run, no matter how hard you try and, and hide from him, he is a better finder than you are hider. I can do all things because he has given me strength. No matter how much you feel like you are being overcome, no matter how much you feel like you will never beat that addiction, I can do all things because he has given me the strength to do them. All things have been placed under your feet. All temptation is under your feet. No temptation is too great, no burden is too heavy. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is a scripture that is often used in those inspirational Christian movies, just about every inspirational Christian movie that's been made since about 2003. And you know the scene, like the entire sporting movie has been building up into this one moment, this climactic moment where the hero of the story is getting ready to walk out onto the field and they know that they need victory in order to make the state playoff game. And they're quoting in their locker room, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or the heroine is standing there on the basketball court and there's 1.64 seconds left on the clock. And she knows that if she makes this free throw right here, that her team is going to the next level. And they start quoting in these movies, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a scripture that we often use and we often hear about overcoming obstacles. When things come against us, we believe that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That whatever comes against us, whatever weapon is formed against us, that we can do all things to overcome it. And when we read through the Bible and we look at stories that talk about overcoming obstacles, it's difficult to look past the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi. Now this story in the Bible is only four chapters long in the book of Ruth, and so I'm going to paraphrase it really, really quickly. But it's a powerful story that is chocked full of great insight, the book of Ruth. And so it starts like this, that there was a guy named Elimelech, and he was married to a woman named Naomi. And together they had two kids, and they were living in Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem, as we know, means the house of bread. But ironically, at this time, it's not a place of bread. There's actually a severe famine in the land, so much so that it drives Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons from Bethlehem, and they decide to cross the river and move into Moab. Now, Moab, the Moabites, they were severe opposition. They were the enemies of the people from Judah and Israel. But they decided to move there anyway and to set up shop and, and then... Uh, Naomi's two sons get married very, very quickly. And we are then introduced to Orpah and Ruth. But then without saying much about what happens, Naomi's husband and her two sons die. And we don't know why. We don't know what happened. But Naomi is left without a man to provide for her, without a man to pre prepare for her, to protect her. And so she's left alone, and she's wondering, why would God abandon me? Why would God leave me in this situation? I had a difficult time in Bethlehem, and so we left that situation, and I moved to Moab, and then I've got a difficult time that I'm in in Moab, and now I don't know where I should be. And she decides to move from Moab back to Bethlehem. 
And she's praying to God, why? No matter what I do, no matter what I try, no matter how hard I work, no matter how much I toil, it seems like nothing is going my way. It seems like I take one step forward and I fall two steps back. No matter what I do, it seems like I can't find the blessing of God. I can't find His anointing. I can't find His peace. I can't find anything that God would have for me. It seems like no matter if I'm in Bethlehem or no matter if I'm in Moab, I can't find what God would have for me. And I feel like this is the prayer that not just Naomi was praying thousands of years ago, but this is the prayer that we often pray too. It seems like no matter what we try to do, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we toil, no matter how much we put our hands to the grind, sometimes it feels like God has abandoned us. Sometimes it feels like God is looking in the other direction. Like maybe I did something once upon a time that I'm being punished for now. Like maybe I left Bethlehem when I shouldn't have. Like maybe I stepped from the place of blessing and I moved into a place called Moab and instead of staying in the house of bread, I removed myself from that blessing and now I'm being punished as a result of it. Naomi is so focused on her disappointment that she changes her name to Mara. Mara is a Hebrew word that means bitter. She literally changes her name from Naomi to Mara, so upset with her situation, so focused on her disappointment that she changes her name. And then she steps, as she moves from Moab back into Bethlehem, people are excited to see her again. Everyone surrounds her and says, hey, everybody, Naomi has returned. Naomi has returned. Everybody, come see Naomi. She has come home. And she says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not me. I'm bitter. My name is Mara. I'm so upset with my situation that I can't even think about myself as Naomi. I'm Mara. And we read this in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. It reads like this. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty, you have made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Did you guys catch that in verse 22? So Naomi returned. She has just finished telling everybody around her, my name is Mara. I want to be known as Mara. That's who I am. I left Bethlehem full and I entered Moab. And now that I'm leaving Moab, I am stepping back into Bethlehem and I'm completely empty. She doesn't recognize the opportunity that is standing right beside her. The Bible says this in verse 22, it says that she was accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. She is so focused on her own disappointment, so focused on her own affliction that she doesn't realize the opportunity, the potential that is standing right next to her. And I wonder how often in life we look at the things that are afflicting us and we're so disappointed by the situation and the circumstance that we find ourselves in and we refuse to allow ourselves to see the potential and the opportunity that is beside us as well. God has put a Ruth beside you that is full of opportunity. And so she leaves Moab and she walks back into Bethlehem and she says, call me Mara. And they say, okay, we'll call you Mara. But then the Bible says, so Naomi returned. It just breezes over the fact that she wants to be known as Mara. It like doesn't even acknowledge that. 
So much so that the Bible doesn't actually say the word Mara again throughout the rest of the story. She says, I want to be known Mara. And God says through this author, "Uh uh-uh, I know who I have created you to be. I have put life on the inside of you. I know that you might be upset with your situation right now, but that will not become your identity. You know what Naomi means? Naomi means, Naomi means pleasantness. Pleasantness. God made her to be a pleasant person. And when she tried to change her name to bitter, from pleasant to bitter, God says, "Uh uh-uh, that is not who you are going to be. You might find this situation difficult. You might find that you are upset. You might find that you are disappointed, but that is not going to become your identity. There is life still in you. I am still the lifter of your head. You can still find your joy in me. Your life still has meaning. Your family still has hope. You might feel like you want to be Mara, but you shall remain Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. And just like Naomi, sometimes we become too focused on our past as well. Naomi had left Bethlehem, the house of bread, moved to Moab, and then was moving back to Bethlehem. Remember, she left Bethlehem because there was a famine. And then she left Moab because her family had died. And now she is stuck in disappointment. But it says this at the end of verse 22, it says, the barley harvest was beginning. Naomi was so focused on her own disappointment, was so focused on her own past that she wasn't able to recognize the Ruth that was standing next to her, wasn't able to recognize the feast and the harvest that she was stepping into. She was so focused on the past and the affliction and the burden and the difficulty that she had come out of that she wasn't able to understand the harvest that God was taking her into. And how often in life do we do the exact same thing? Are we so focused on the burden and the pain and the difficulty that we have endured and we don't allow ourselves to experience the harvest that God is taking us into? We think life is difficult. We think life is hard. We think life must be overcome. We think the enemy is coming against us. And those things are true, but God has made you to be an overcomer. And it's all about your perspective. It's all about the identity that we find in Christ. And when you do those things, you realize the potential and the opportunity that is standing right next to you. But where does this leave us with Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things. If Naomi can do all things, why would she have not turned around the famine situation that was existing in Bethlehem? If Naomi could do all things, then why did she not stop her husband and her kids from passing away? Why did she not revive them? Why did she not bring them back to life? If she could do all things, if this scripture is true, Philippians 4.13, why did she not do all things Why did she not overcome the situation that was coming against her? Well, in order to answer this question, we have to look back at this verse in context. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, if we jump back a little bit up in the book of Philippians. And remember, this is Paul who is writing to the church in Philippi. He says this in verse number 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Content. Paul is writing from a prison cell. Paul has been in prison for over two years by this point. He's been shipwrecked. And this is not just a cushy prison like we have in 2020. Like he's on death row in an old school prison being chained to a prison guard. The Jews are attacking him. Now many of the Christians are attacking him. This is Paul writing in prison after he has been there for over two years. He says, I have learned to be content. And then he continues in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then this is our verse, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't it funny when you look at verses in context, you realize they're not really what they're about. Paul here in Philippians 4.13 is not talking about overcoming some situation in the future. He's not talking about some weapon that will be formed against him. He's not talking about overcoming some mountain. He's not talking about some inspirational quote that he needs to overcome the enemy. What he's talking about is finding contentment on the other side of that thing. So that whatever situation he finds himself in, he knows that he can find contentment because he knows where his contentment comes from. Now, we know this. We know that this makes sense. We know that we cannot do all things through Christ who gives us strength. I remember when I, was, uh, when I was young and I was growing up in my parents' house and they have a pool in their backyard and I would stand on the edge of the pool real often and I would stand there reminding myself of the story of when Jesus walked out on the water. You guys ever done this? So I'd stand there right on the edge of the pool and I would remind myself of the story of when Jesus was out walking on the lake and then he calls to Simon Peter and he says, hey, you come out here as well. And then Simon Peter walks out on the water as well. And so I'd remind myself of that scripture and I would stand there on the edge of the pool and then I would say to myself, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And then I would step out on the water. And you know what happened every single time? I sunk right to the bottom. Every single time, no matter how often I tried, I sunk right to the bottom. We know this, right? Because this scripture, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, is not about overcoming some situation. It's about finding the contentment on the other side of that situation. It's about contentment. No, no matter what situation, no matter what circumstance, no matter what difficulty, I can find contentment because I don't find it in my situation. I find it in my Savior. The problem with misinterpreting this scripture is that we often blame God when things go wrong. If we truly think I can do all things through him who gives me strength, when things go against us, when things don't go our way, then we have all kinds of difficulty. Then my power gets shut off and I blame God. He must not love me. I asked that girl out on a date and she said no. He abandoned me. I applied for a job transfer and they said no. God must not care. If we truly believe this scripture like it's often taught incorrectly, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, then we miss the point. If it's about contentment, we have to understand what contentment is. Contentment is about satisfaction. It's about finding a satisfaction in who God has created us to be, what we have, and where we're going. It's about this deep underlying satisfaction, this acceptance of the situation that God has put us in. 
We read this in 1 Timothy 6. It says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. So contentment is really important. The Bible talks often about contentment. And if it is so important, then why is it so difficult for us to get? Why is it that the world works against us in trying to understand what contentment is? We read this in Matthew 6, 31. It says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, or that is the non-Christians of the time, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I can do all things is about contentment. Meredith and I are trying to teach Theo about contentment in this season. It's tough to teach a four-year-old to be content with things, y'all. Please be praying for us. So anytime that we give him something and he's not satisfied with it, he's going to complain about it. And so we say to him, are you content with this situation? And he says, I don't know what that means. And we say, well, contentment is about being satisfied with what you have and being grateful for the thing that you have been given. Are you satisfied with what we have given you? And the answer is often no, because he wants something more or he wants more ice cream or different flavors or whatever it is. But a few nights ago, I was out with Theo and we were driving around running some errands. And, uh, and I said to him, hey, you've done a great job at being really obedient tonight. I appreciate the way, the attitude that you've had. So let's stop at a drive-thru and get some ice cream on the way home. Now, he knows that when we go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, that it has cherries on the ice cream when you order it. The problem was, though, we weren't at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. <laughs> and so I told him that we would get some ice cream, and he says to me, yeah, Daddy, let's get some ice cream and make sure that it has cherries on it. This is my four-year-old telling me to make sure that we got cherries on top of the ice cream. And so I said to him, Theo, I'm really sorry. We're probably not going to be able to get any cherries on the ice cream, knowing full well that it absolutely was not going to happen. But you know how, like, when you've got a four-year-old and you're raising little kids, you say, probably, like, maybe, I'm not sure, knowing that it ain't going to happen. You just hope that they're going to forget about it in about a minute's time. So I said, it's probably not going to happen, buddy. And so I get up to the little speaker box where you order your food, and I said, I'd like two ice creams, please. And Theo shouts from his seat in the back, Daddy, don't forget the cherries, too. And I said, Theo, it's probably not going to be happening tonight. We'll get cherries on your ice cream another time. And he starts to sulk, and he gets upset, and he starts groaning. And I, th- I said, Theo, this is an opportunity for you to show contentment with the situation that we have right now. I said, are you content with getting an ice cream without any cherries on top? And he said, well, Dad... I guess I can be content, but it it sure would be easier to be content if I could have some cherries on top of the ice cream, too. But that's not really just the way that four-year-olds understand contentment. That's the way that all of us really deal with contentment, too. I remember when my wife and I bought our home right after we got married, And we were so excited. We were so thrilled to be moving into this new home. We were just passionate about making improvements. And we had been watching HGTV for weeks. And we knew that there was all kinds of walls that we could move and and things that we could paint and faucets that we could change and fixtures that could be updated and all of these kind of things. And we were so excited. This was the first big thing that we ever did. 
And then we started hosting people over to our house and they would come in the door and we'd say, oh, we're gonna move this wall over here and we're gonna paint this and this is gonna be awesome, we're gonna try this and then we wanna move this over here and then this is gonna happen and we'd start telling them about all the changes that we wanted to make. And then someone came in one time and they said, is there anything that you actually like about the house? And we said, of course there is. What do, you, what do you mean? Why would you ask that question? They said, well, we've been in the house for about 30 minutes now and you've spent the entire time telling us about things that you want to change, things that you wish were different, walls that you wish were a different color, walls that you wish weren't there in the first place. You've spent your entire time with us telling us about things that you are discontent about. Are you sure you actually want this house in the first place? And it checked us because we had to realize that we were so grateful when we first got it. When God first gave us that home in the first place, we were thrilled, we were ecstatic, we were grateful, we were content with what God had given us. And then slowly over time, we realized that our contentment had faded and discontentment had risen. And we had allowed the enemy to step into that situation. But what I've learned about temptation, what I've learned about discontentment is that the world doesn't necessarily try to get us to purchase outrageous things. Temptation doesn't often work with this audacious, ostentatious, big picture out there goal that we're often tempted with. At least this isn't how it works for me and most people that I speak to. Most people are not really tempted to buy Ferraris and Porsches and multi-million dollar homes. We can look at them and think that they're nice, but we're not tempted to really buy them because we know they're so far off. The way that I've found that temptation often works is that we buy things just a little bit too nice for where we should be in this season of life. We've got this budget that is this big, and we decide to make decisions just a little bit bigger than what we should be making in this season. We're not buying Ferraris and Porsches and Lamborghinis to be driving around all the time because we probably couldn't do it anyway. But we, instead of buying a 2012 Corolla to be driving around, we're driving a 2019 Tiguan. And instead of maybe deciding that we're going to buy this car, we start thinking, well, maybe instead of just buying this, I'm going to think about how much this car is going to cost me per month. Instead of me asking the question, how much does it cost? My question becomes, how much does it cost per month? And the Tiguan, that sounds cool. It sounds foreign and exotic. I want that car. Everyone else has the Corolla. I don't want that car anymore. This isn't to say that Jesus would have you be poor and worship him at the same time. It doesn't mean that you have to be poor to serve him. It doesn't mean that you have to be poor to serve him or to love him or to worship him. But... When we start pursuing these bigger and better and bigger and bigger things, we just often find ourselves falling into deeper and deeper and deeper debt. And then when we pursue this relentless pursuit of bigger and bigger and bigger, we soon realize that we cannot be content in anything, that we want a sexier wife, that we want, I couldn't possibly have one that we want a better job, that we, want, that we want a higher salary, that we want longer vacation time, right? We've got this relentless pursuit of more and more and more, and we're never satisfied, we're never content, because that's what the world would have us see. The latest statistics say that if you have a roof over your head, and if you have had food in your belly in the last 24 hours, then you are richer than 93% of the world's population. 
simply a roof over your head and food in your belly. If you've got shoes on your feet, did everyone have shoes on their feet today? Everyone have shoes on their feet. If you have shoes on your feet today, then you are wealthier than 75% of the world's population. But we still don't find contentment in that. The latest economic studies show that the U.S. national debt continues to rise. Our global or our U.S. consumer debt, our credit card debt per household sits at about $8,500 on average per household. For every home, we have about $8,500 of debt because we can't find contentment. Scripture is clear that the more that you try and pursue, the more fleeting it becomes. Solomon, who was one of the wealthiest and richest people who ever lived, says this in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. And so I know that you've been pursuing that big job opportunity, that job promotion, and you might have just landed it, and now it brought you an increased salary and you're stoked about it. But the problem is it takes more hours and now you're working even more and your hours become even longer and now you're home even later and you're spending less time with your family. You're spending less time with your church. Jesus didn't say that you should not love God and money. He said that you cannot love God and money. But all too often, we try and find this compromise, like I'm going to love God 70 to 80%, and then I'm going to love money 20 to 30%. But that's not how it works. He didn't say you should not. He said that you cannot love him. Finding contentment in the markets is a foolish way to live, especially nowadays with how fleeting it is, with how volatile the markets are at the moment. But when you try and find contentment in all kinds of situations, in your wealth, in your resources, even in your family, in the belief that the Bitcoin investment that you made years ago is going to bounce back, which it probably never will. When you try and find contentment in these situations, we realize how foolish they truly are, and we realize that we're in bondage to the circumstances and the situations that we're in. When you wake up each day and you wonder if you're going to have a good day, chances are 50-50 at best that you're going to have a good day. When you wonder how your day is going to be, when you get out of your bed and you wonder, is everything going to go my way today? Am I going to have a good day today? Instead of that, I encourage you to try this, getting out of your bed and telling yourself, I am going to have a good day today. No matter what comes against me, no matter what circumstance comes against me, no matter what weapon is formed against me, no matter what meeting I have in my day today, I am the head and not the tail. I am above only and not beneath. I am an overcomer. I can overcome every situation that God has put in front of me. I can overcome every situation that the enemy has put in front of me. I am victorious. And when that is your attitude, you begin to find true contentment, true contentment in life. So how do we do this? We know that it's important. We know that the world doesn't want us to have contentment, but how do we do this? Because Paul says very clearly that we can do it. Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 12 that it can be learned. He said, I have learned to be content, no matter what situation, no matter what circumstance I am in. He says, you can learn it too. If he learned it, then we can learn how to do it. 
You might be moving through life discontent with every situation that you're in, discontent with the relationships that you have, discontent with the home that you have, the car that you're driving. But Paul says you can learn to be content. So that's first and foremost. Learn and accept that you can be content. It is possible for all of us to do. And the key to overcoming discontentment is to find out who God really is and to learn about the times in your life that he has proven himself to be faithful. Look at the times in your past and realize all of the times that he has proven himself to be faithful. And don't just look at your own life. Look at your friends. Look down your aisle and ask them, has God been faithful in your life? Tell me about a time that God has proven himself to be faithful in your life. Don't just look at this church. Look at the stories of the Bible and realize how often God proves himself to be faithful. I would venture to say it's every time. Every time God proves himself to be faithful, no matter what situation, no matter what circumstance. We see this in Psalm 107, it says this, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? He's a faithful God. We were singing about that today. He's a faithful God. He's a faithful God. True contentment only comes when you make godliness your priority and when eternity is your perspective. When godliness is your priority, not other things being your priority, not building wealth, not new cars, not new resources, not an update of systems and softwares in your life. When godliness becomes your priority, that's when you find contentment. And when eternity is your perspective, not the here and now, not today, when your perspective shifts from the temporary and moves to the eternal, that's when you find contentment. When godliness is your priority and when eternity is your perspective, that's when you find true contentment. That's when you can look at every situation in your life and know that I might be in a famine season this time, but he is still my God that I can be in a feast season in this time and he is still my God, that I can be fasting in January and he is still my God, that I can be feasting in February and he is still my God, that he is my God of the valley, that he is my God of the mountain time. No matter how far I run, he is still my God. No matter what situation, no matter which circumstance, he is still my God. No matter how far I run, he is still my God. He sustains all. And he will find you no matter how far you fall, no matter how far you run. He will always be ready for you to return because he is desperately wanting to be in relationship with you. So if we jump back to the story of Ruth and Naomi, we need to be introduced to a guy named Boaz. Boaz. Boaz was a landowner who was pretty wealthy. He was doing pretty well for himself. And he had a bunch of people that worked his land and would bring in the harvest. And he also understood the Levitical law in Leviticus chapter 19 that said, you can have all of this land for your own harvesting, but leave a portion, leave a corner of your property for the poor and the outcast and for the widows, leave a portion of your property for them to harvest. The people that did so were gleaners. And so Ruth enters into Boaz's life by being a gleaner. She enters the corner of his property and she works this land like her life depends on it. 
and she toils, and she works, and she harvests, and she does whatever she possibly can from sunup to sundown. She works it like she is a somebody. So much so that Boaz pays attention. He turns and notices and realizes, who is this woman that is working this land right now? Grabs his attention. And then Naomi finds out what Ruth has been doing. And she says, you're doing this in Boaz's land? This is awesome. Boaz is our kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer for her was the closest living relative that could take care of her. And it is because of Boaz's contentment in his land, because he wasn't solely desiring to maximize 100% of the property that he had, because he was content with the thing that God had given him, because he was obedient to the law that said, leave a portion of the land available for the poor and for the outcast, for the widows, that Ruth was able to enter into that story right there. And so Naomi says to Ruth, go and woo the guy. And she does so, and she's successful in doing so. So much so that they get married. And then Boaz and Ruth have a baby named Obed. And Obed grows up. And then Obed has a baby named Jesse. And then Jesse grows up. And then Jesse has a baby named David. And David grows up and becomes King David. And if you continue the story on, you realize that we are talking about the lineage. We are talking about the one, the story that would bring Jesus into the world. It's because of the obedience. It's because of the contentment of Boaz. It's because he didn't try to maximize everything that he had because he understood the importance of being generous with what he had that he allowed Ruth to enter into his corner. He realized the potential of this woman. He married her, and through his offspring, we see that the Messiah enters into the story. And we see that Boaz is recognized in this story because of the contentment that he recognized within himself, because of the contentment that he had within himself. And God so honors Boaz's decision to not maximize everything that he had, not to maximize the entire profit of his land, But we see that God honors this by bringing the Messiah in through his lineage and recognizes the story of Boaz right there next to the story of Jesus. And as you continue studying this, we realize that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And he doesn't just leave a portion of his land for us. He makes all of heaven available for us. He poured himself out on the cross. He didn't hold a little bit of himself back. He poured his spirit out on all flesh, that all may prophesy, that all may dream dreams, that all may lay their hands on people and see them healed, because he is that kind of God. It is through this contentment that we see that David comes into the story, and Jesus comes into the story. This is the God that we get to worship. He is the God that we can find contentment in through him and him alone. No matter what circumstance, no matter what situation you find yourself in, we can find contentment in Jesus, the Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. When things come from God, our correct response is that we should have gratitude and contentment. When things come from the enemy we should have a holy discontent to stand up and push back against those things. That's what our entire series was about when we were talking about being mountain movers, that there are things in life that we should not accept, that there are things in life that we should push back against, 
that the enemy is trying to rear his ugly head and to push into our society. These are things like sexism and abortion and human trafficking and racism. These are the things that the enemy is trying to push into our society. But as a church, we stand up and say that is not acceptable right here and right now. And we have a holy discontent that God has given us the ability to push back against those things. I hope that message meant something to you and that it means something in your days to come. Yeah, if this message has blessed you and you want to sow into the ministry of Cornerstone Church, you can do so from wherever you are today. Simply jump on our website at cornerstone.church and you can find the link there so that you can give in whatever way is most convenient to you. And we'll see you back here next time.